Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Oh, hey, James. Mayor de Blasio was just referring to me live on a press conference, which is just insane that I'm, I'm, I'm not, I think my article is not that important <laughs> compared to many of the issues that my article brings up. Yes. So I think yeah, people yeah. related my article to being an issue. I'm not creating the problem. The article is not creating the problem. The article is pointing out the problem. And even de Blasio is like, oh, this person wants to leave and give up on the city. I, I said no such thing, of course. I just, I point out the facts that are undeniable, but, and I talk about my own love for the city and everybody went insane on So James, first of all, thank you so much for your courage. Um, I always tell you, you've got the rarest human trait, which is courage because this withering, I mean, imagine like if I told you two weeks ago, you're gonna wake up, one of the most famous human beings who's ever lived, a billionaire, is going to be besieging you, attacking you, not for something you did. You didn't do anything. Uh, and, and the mayor of the largest city in America would be attacking you, assailing you, criticizing you. I mean, you thought 2020 was a simulation before. Where's your mind at right now? It's so funny you bring up the simulation thing because first off, I woke, I mean, the article was already creating way. I wrote the article a week and a half ago. You know, the title is New York City is dead forever. Here's why. And I really wanted it to be a wake-up call. These, this is my city too. I was born in this city. Yep. I've lived in it. I lived here all through the pandemic, but I was also living right next to Ground Zero on 9-11. I was living on Wall Street during the financial collapse and reporting them. And not quite as a reporter, but as someone who's a concerned, lifelong New Yorker. And it got a lot of attention last week. You know, people wrote articles like, this guy could just drop dead. You know, I hope he jumps in the water with a lead lifesaver. Um, this guy, you, I was, people would send me entire videos, you should be hung. And I was getting some, a lot of hate, but also mm -hmm. a lot of people were saying, yeah, you know, people were privately messaging me like, yeah, you know, there's issues, we left New York, or this is why we're moving to Memphis, Tennessee, or whatever. And my, and my point was too, is that, Opportunity now, the good side of this is opportunity now might be decentralized throughout the whole country. Mm -hmm. we, we live in a country built on innovationism. Let's use that word instead of capitalism. So innovationism, our ability for each generation to, to innovate. And this might mean that the entire country now will, will innovation will be dispersed from San Francisco, LA, New York City, and every city now could, could be a source of innovation. Yeah. But New York City is going to have these economic issues. And also, I don't know what to do about them. Like, they're really important, huge issues. And again, they're facts. They're not my opinion. And, and then everybody went right. crazy. And that yeah. was last week. So then Monday, I figure, okay, it's, it's died down now. Everything's right. going to be okay. I was a little stressed out because it's not... I usually get some hate, you know, you're not really writing anything interesting if there's not a little bit of controversy yeah. um, uh, because then you're not stating a new opinion. But then I wake up and I saw, I woke up and I saw right when somebody texted me, hey, hey, you putz, what's going on? And I'm like, why is this woman I hardly ever speak to calling me a putz? Like, <laughs> what? I've never been called that before. And then apparently there was a reason. Jerry Seinfeld in the New York Times 
yeah. had singled me out for some reason and was saying basically the worst. He, he was eviscerating me. Like, you know, he's he's a funny guy. So yeah. he tore well, I said me. it wasn't funny. It was ad hominem, which is not. Yeah, yeah no, right. He, he, I don't know what he was doing. Like, and I don't, I still don't know why really. He was tearing me apart. And he, and it was because of the article, but he wasn't addressing, he didn't address the fact that, look, thousand up to 30 to 40 to 50 percent of restaurants in new york city might be shut down forever yeah up broadway is might might be shut like who's going to invest in the next broadway production where's broadway going it might be they're going outdoors james it's going to yeah. be on broadway literally you're going to be on <laughs> right which will be impossible because of the way broadway is structured with unions but then what happens to the whole econ economy around broadway the restaurants the hotels the tourism you know, what happens to commercial real estate when everybody goes remote? And why are they going to go remote? Well, bandwidth now, you and I were talking at 30, 40 megabits per second, whereas in 2008, it was only two megabits per second. So now we can do this remote. And every company has realized that. And it turns out remote, actually, there's studies on this. Remote is more productive and it's cost savings. So what does happens to New York City tax revenues. Meanwhile, def deficits are going up. So, and, and look, it's not me saying this. I know. Blasio is, is firing 22,000 workers on August 31st. He's firing EMTs, teachers, MTA workers, police, garbage collectors. So yep. what's going to happen? There's going to be garbage all over the streets. People's lives are going to be in danger. And I just point this all out. Jerry Seinfeld could have helped you know, he's in a strong position of influence, much more influential than me. Maybe he could have pointed to some solutions or, or he could have written, hey, maybe we need some sort of bailout or maybe we need people to gather together and, and help the community. Instead, he just, he spent almost the entire article, like 95% of it, attacking me personally and 5% saying, New York's got grit. Right. And yeah, all these amorphous things. The other thing, James, I pointed out, uh, sorry to interrupt, is that the absolute derision that he has for anyone who's not in New York. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was saying to my listeners before you got on, you know, like Jerry's writing this from a mansion, which I personally have seen that has, you know, a phalanx of Porsches out in front of it from the 1950s to today. Uh, you know, next to a private jet. So he says, I'm in New, I'm on Long, I have also have a place on Long Island, you know, like it's in Bayshore or something, you know, it's, <laughs> he's in like Amagansett or East Hampton, I forget which one, but the derision that he has for Florida, for Maine, for Vermont, for ten, anywhere that's, it's like that New Yorker cartoon where they show like the New Yorker's view of the world. And look, J uh, Jerry, you, James, me, we're all New York Jews. I, I thought, you know, Seinfeld was not Jewish enough. You know, I, I used to say that. Uh, but look, this is this is not a good look. I mean, saying like, are you kidding me? Like Tennessee, I was just speaking. I know a multi multi-millionaire whose kids are in Hollywood. They're in, I can't tell you which production. They, they make tons of money on, on movies and so forth. Um, uh, you know, child actors and they're pampered. They were living in, 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 Florida, in um, Los Angeles. I called them last week. How are you doing? We should get f together for, for dinner sometime soon. Uh, that'll be hard because I'm in Nashville. I'm like, what the heck? You're in Nashville? He's like, yeah, I couldn't take it anymore. And I'm like, LA has much more going for it right now 
because of our temperature proximity to the Pacific, uh, lack of coronavirus patients compared to New York City. Unfortunately, it was, you know, you and I and, and, and Jerry are all lifelong New Yorkers at heart, but um, he moved and he's a New Yorker and he, but he moved from LA to Nashville. What, what's wrong with Nashville? I mean, he said he got seven times the house that he was living in, you know, in Hollywood. He got, uh, you know, he's got immediately, he do his work remote over, I was talking to him over Zoom. He's, a, you know, he's doing this and that. He's setting up, his kids can do voiceovers and stuff for Disney using Zoom. That's what they're yeah. doing. And to have this vitriol for people, you know, in Tennessee, you know, this guy you know, can run rings. And, and not to mention the fact that you're doing comedy still from stand up New York, but you're doing it outside. How, are you going to keep doing that in January? I mean, this has gotten ridiculous. But the ad hominem attack, I, the last thing I'll say before you continue is it reminded me of this conversation I had with Noam Chomsky. And you remember I was asking you for advice. Should I publish this thing? I was kind of nervous because I don't agree with him on much politically. Uh, but you were like, that's precisely the reason you have to publish this. You need, you encourage me to have courage. And that was the, I call that the all toucher assay. You know, when you have, when you have this nagging, tingling doubt, should I do this? Should I put, make the po push the post button? That's exactly when you have to get over the hurdle, go through the tunnel and push that button. And, um, and when I was talking to Gnome, there was a point in the conversation where it's just funny, like he has his dog come in and his dog is like barking his head off. And I'm like, God, how, when am I going to talk to this 92 year old guy, you know, born 10 years to the day before Pearl Harbor or whatever. And the dog's barking his head. I'm like, Gnome, would you mind, you know, the dog's linguistics are, you know, kind of challenging me. Would you mind putting a muzzle on? I was just joking or whatever. And people were like yelling at me. And then I said, they were like, how could you tell Gnome's dog to say, I said, um, there's a famous quote from like Epictetus or, you know, Ryan Holiday could tell us who it is, but it, the quote is the dog barks at that, which it does not understand. And I kept thinking that when I read Jane, uh, Jerry's op-ed, he's just barking. There's nothing there. He doesn't yeah, understand it. I mean, his main point was that people are, this, this guy, meaning me is just, I wouldn't want to be in a war with him. Like he's just giving up. And look, I don't recall Jerry being a Vietnam vet or a Gulf War vet or anything, but I don't know. I would want to be with the Cola Wars. He served <laughs> proudly in the Cola Wars. Right. And, and, and I, I, I would want to be with someone who could accurately assess the situation and start to come up with solutions other than just we've got to grit and storm the front lines, like which is look, I'm a New Yorker. I'm still a New Yorker. My kids go to school in New York. I own a comedy club in New York. Um, I haven't been, you know, Jerry's been in, and I don't, I don't mean to say anything, but he criticized me on this. I was in New York from March through July. He was in, he's been in the Hamptons since March. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, in a, in a castle, like I'm envious of his situation. <laughs> and I don't understand what, what, and I could understand there was a lot of anger from people who maybe didn't understand that I was trying to point, do a wake up call and point out problems. And people are scared. People are scared their real estate's gonna go to zero. They're scared their jobs are gonna be lost. And I'm trying to say, a third, you know, there's, again, the, even the New York Times says that a third of small businesses in New York City might not ever come back. And, yeah. you know, this is a scary thing. So, yes, I didn't expect people to direct their anger at me, but it happened, whatever. But I don't know what his, agenda was or why he did it or he's a smart guy i'm not questioning that i don't i just don't understand it like well, okay well jerry what how does grit help when every uh uh restaurant goes out of business how does grit you know some people are saying if 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 indoor dining is closed through the winter 
90% of restaurants might go out of business. Yeah. What, what, Jerry, what's, what's going to happen then? You, you tell us like, yeah, the only thing I see Rick doing is encouraging people to wear masks. Like people have this feel the need to actually do something. Humans are, you know, animus, you know, an animal that likes to do something. Right. And so putting on a mask and, you know, there's differing, uh, you know, kind of a philosophy, some resist it, some don't, but the point is the mask is something that you can do actively. Um, tell me, you know, when you have five kids, and, and you have to educate them and you've got one computer, not like Jerry, you know, presumably, uh, and, and et cetera, and, and they're all fighting over it and they have to be quiet and you've got one pair of headphones and they got six Zoom calls. It is a nightmare. And there's never been, 9-11, you, know, you could go to, I went down to, to 9-11 ground zero. My, my cousin went down there as it was happening and he was just I, trying to help. In the yeah, you were right next to it yeah. um, when, when that happened. And um, you could do something and people did and their hearts poured out. What do you do now? There's, you know, people use this metaphor of the, the virus. We're in a war against the virus. We're not. There, there's no war. There's no enemy that you can fight. You know, oh, like all of a sudden we're all going to become epidemiologists and molecular biologists. I mean, that's the that's what we're left with. But the fact that he he just like it was kind of like this. Um, I felt it was a little pandering. You know, he's kind of like New York's going to be there, you know, kind of like the Billy Joel anthem after 9-11 or, you know, it's kind of like now we're going to solidify and it. But but the fact how does it feel that, you know, yeah, this is this is targeting around you and it's not even targeting your ideas because he's just like everyone hates Zoom. OK, so like I'm on a lot more Zooms than you are, Jerry, I'm sure. You know, I used to joke that I thought I, as an astronomer, I'd be on telescopes, but I'm on telecons mo most of my life. And for him to like, you know, oh, Zoom sucks. OK, so like when you have your virtual 3D hologram, you know, virtual presence, you know, are you still going to not, you know, <laughs> uh, believe that that there's something that's different qualitatively? Uh, and the other thing I'll say before you go on, James, is, you know, he makes fun of like, he says, well, Silicon Valley, do you know why people live there? The biggest tower, I believe, west of Manhattan is the Salesforce Tower in, in San Francisco. Do you know how long it's going to be closed for? Like this enormous building, you know, like nearly the size of the, of the of One World Trade Center. They're closing it for at least a year. They're saying, you don't have to come back to Salesforce. You don't have to come back to Twitter. You don't have to come back to Google. You can, right. All my friends that are working at Google in LA, in the Bay Area, they're working from home. They're, it's not affecting them as much as, as Jerry might think they were because they don't have the in-person, uh, uh, um, you know, energy as he calls it. So what do you make of that? Like what, how can, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, just on that point though, you know, it's interesting. He says, people don't want to do that. Well, A, I haven't found that to be true. Most people I speak to, yes, sometimes they like going into the office and sometimes they don't, but many people don't like going into a cubicle and, just hanging out with their cubicle mates all day long. And I, I always ask people, are you going to go to the funeral of your cubicle mate? Like, is that, are you guys lifelong friends? I don't now? even like to go to the bathroom with half of them. <laughs> right, exactly. And, 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 but it's, but even besides that, it's not the individual's choice. Unfortunately, like corporations have many issues. A, they don't know what the liability issues are around the virus. So it, it, no laws have been set. There are liability issues. They don't know if someone gets sick while they're coming to work uh, and being in a conference room meeting with someone coughing. Is the, does the company get – they don't know. So they want people to work remote. Then there are many studies that show that people are simply more productive working remotely, not for every job, but for most jobs. Now, people say, well, you know, you know New York's not like Detroit where Detroit, of course, is in shambles. And they're very correct. Detroit was actually hard to have. You can't have people work remote 
in Detroit because they were making cars. You have to be uh, in the factory making the car. In New York, the main industries are finance and media and tech. And those are all industries. Of course, you could work remote, particularly now that we have Zoom. So companies, instead of renting expensive real estate in New York, can say, okay, we're going to go downsize from seven floors to one floor, and we'll send everybody remote. And Citigroup, JP Morgan, you mentioned Google, many hundreds of companies are doing this. And people are fine. Like, I know people all over the country now. One friend of mine just moved, I mentioned in the article, we just moved to Phoenix, and he was in, New York, in, in the office every day until this pandemic. Now, He's never going to have to go back to the office again. He's in Phoenix. Salaries stayed the same, but the company reduced their floor space. They're, 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 every company is doing this, and but that has consequences. New York City real estate goes down. Restaurants have less customers. The hot dog stand outside, the bodega, the newspaper guy, the transit system, the subways, the buses, the trains. Uh, and then again, Broadway, the entire ecosystem around that uh restaurants the entire ecosystem around the restaurant industry or this you know there's two quarter million small businesses in new york that that may never you know 30 percent of them may never open again is is you know some estimates quoted in the new york times so i don't i i i think there are big problems and then when you ha again when you have deficits this high and tax revenues that could get cut in half we haven't even seen the effects of it but we have seen the effects of sales taxes going down. And that's why de Blasio, who was just live making fun of me on TV, he is on August 31st. He has to cut, according to a city spokesperson, he has to cut 22,000 jobs, including EMTs, garbage collectors, police, and so on. So that's what starts to happen in a city in New York's situation, unless there's, it's not like this utopia where all of a sudden rents are cheap and young people and artists can move in bad things happen first to get to that point. That point doesn't happen for 20 years or, or ever. That's right. So, and, and again, it could be the case that opportunity gets dispersed. The, a young up and coming, you know, let's say we live in this innovationist culture. Like let's not call it capitalist for a second. Let's call it innovationist. So innovationists are usually young people who move to San Francisco, LA, New York City, they're going to strike out on their own and they're going to make it big. If I can make it here, I can make it anywhere. Well, <laughs> now they can make it big in Nashville, in Memphis, in St. Louis, in Denver, in Dallas, in Austin, in Miami. They don't have to be in New York, LA, or San Francisco anymore. They can make friends in these cities. They can make industries, careers. They can move to Phoenix and work on Wall Street. So the world's a different place. And so again, I'm not sure why he, you know, not to bring it back to Jerry Seinfeld's personal attack on me, but I don't know why he did that instead of addressing real issues and yeah. real solutions. The thing is, you know, it's like, I guess I missed Jerry's newsletter where he has this great track record of forecasting. I, I compiled a short list of things that you've been dead spot on. I call you, you know, uh, j just on the money, James. So you called Bitcoin back in 2010, I believe, it was the first time you started, man the hell is he talking about? You know, I've been following you for stalking. I'm following you for 20 years or 15 years. We spoke together at TEDx San Diego. So you called Bitcoin when it was like a penny. You charged, uh, you know, like one Bitcoin for copies of your book, which yeah, people in, 20, like, in 2013, I built probably the first e-commerce store yeah. uh, for Bitcoin. I only sold my book in it. So I was able to claim I was the best selling author on Bitcoin only ever. Yeah. And you took, took, um, you know, very courageous stance back in the early days of Amazon self-publishing, 
you, uh, you called the Apple to be the first company across 1 trillion, called the first time Apple across 2 trillion. You called the South Sea bubble. You called the tulip mania. I mean, you've been right so many times, James. Like, what's Jerry's record of social societal prognostication? Well, I would say he was a genius. And I will, uh, here's where, and this is more of a Larry David thing, but let's com combine them together for a second. Yeah. You know, a show about nothing was kind of, a show where you learn nothing was kind of an innovation in entertainment and media, uh, you know, in mainstream media entertainment. Uh, and, but it wasn't just that, where they really were innovative with Seinfeld was they gave each main character, obviously there were four main characters, you know, Kramer and George and, and Elaine and, and Jerry. They, in every episode, each character had a storyline that all came together at the end. No other sitcom had done that before. And I think that was really Larry David's innovation. He didn't want, mm -hmm. just as a leader, which most people don't think of Larry David as an example of leadership, but he really right. is. Yeah. As a leader, he knew he didn't want any of his main stars who were becoming celebrities to be just sitting around for an entire episode. So he made sure every episode included all of them. And then another innovation was he knew that he needed a constant, um, feeding of New York City stories that he was going to run out eventually. So he would fire the whole writing staff every year and bring in new, from what I understand, maybe not 100%, but like 90%. He'd fire the whole writing staff and bring in new New York City writers to tell new stories. And, you know, he, they, he did a really good job running the show. And, uh, you know, and Jerry continued that after, after Larry left. And, of course, Jerry was not only writing it, he was starring in it. So he, they were innovative for what they were. And, and as a comedian... He's very innovative at taking the commonplace and finding the unusual in it. And mm -hmm. so I will, I will give him, you know, full 100% credit. He's the best in the world at that. But in terms of social commentary, uh, I don't know. And again, I, I'll, I, the only time I've ever seen him make any social commentary was when he wrote this op-ed. I have never seen him write anything about anything before. And I've never seen an op-ed so thoroughly just be a nonstop insult before. Yeah. It was almost, I couldn't tell whether to be funny or stressed that it was about me. Like it was funny in the sense that this, this is clearly a simulation now, I've proven it and everybody is fake and this is just about me and I'm tired of this game, you could turn it off now. And at the same time, I was getting, particularly in the morning, I was getting so much hate that yeah. it was unbelievable. Like, and then, Everybody, people I'd known 20 years ago who, who, who must have been holding on to some tiny grudge uh, for me, um, you know, suddenly piggybacked because it was safe, you know, Seinfeld's anger. And it was just very disturbing. Then I wrote a rebuttal and people kind of, even if they didn't read the original article, maybe they read the rebuttal. But by the end of the day, I felt like people were starting to say, oh, Jerry was just insulting this guy and this guy was just presenting real rational issues and by the way he's from new york also born and bred and and he had real things to say yeah i was you know saying to to my wife i was like why don't they these two guys just settle it like new yorkers have traditionally done for hundreds of years like aaron burr and alexander hamilton like we should sure. just have you know that's a that's a gentlemanly way to do it you guys should just hash it out but you know this this saying you know i i wrote you on twitter i said you know something like you know this ratings gold like now you're getting so much attention um there's this there's a, a book 1984 you you surely know it animal farm another one um and animal farm orwell talks about benjamin the donkey 
and he's like, yeah, I've got this great tail and the tail keeps away the flies and the pig's like, oh, you're so lucky. And Benjamin's the donkey's like, yeah, but I'd rather not have the, the flies and not need the tail. It's like, where do you, how do you come down on that now? Like this is, it's hard to imagine that you're going to get like this again, a billionaire, super powerful Hollywood guy. Um, and I'm talking about James Altucher. No, no, no I'm talking about Jerry. Uh, and, and then he's like, and it's all the, all the plaudits online. Oh, just thank you, Jerry, you know, for standing up to the, to the, like this guy who's, you know, I mean, it's true. You're not, you're not at his level of, of wealth and fame and, and te- but right. do you want it? Is that like, were you like, Oh great. Now I'm going to kind of ride the tide and surf the wake of Jerry Seinfeld cracking up. Uh, you know, also he doesn't mention you, but he mentions your club. I, I thought it was kind of weird, you know, and one hand he's saying he like, trash the club. And by the way, he, he's performed regularly there. He lives around when he's in Manhattan, he's around the corner from the I'm club. sure he so is. This yeah, is the club he performs at, and he says, you need to spruce it up. Uh, every comedy club in the world needs to be spruced. Up. <laughs> I was I just going to say that. I was going to say, yeah, like, I forgot about all those comedy it. clubs where I eat off the floor. You know, yeah. I, I drop my, uh, my martini on the ground. I just lick it up because it's so clean and, and modern. I mean, give me a break. And by the way, the club is giving back to the city. Like we're having outdoor free shows they outdoor shows in every single park this week no other comedy club is doing that and you know and all through this i mean there was things that i've done all through this pandemic to try to help the community and you know being you know you know i don't really need to talk about all of yeah. them but no, I've been, no, i know you have you've done go fun i'll say it for you i don't want you to brag you've done gofundme things people like no questions asked anything for charity, anything for business. You've been giving away 10 business ideas a week. You know, in the beginning, you were on live every day, just answering people's questions. And James, you were partially like a psychologist, even for me. I mean, you're like, what the hell does an astrophysicist have to do with some, you know, comedy club owner, you know, come pl- but you're, you know, the way that you analyze the world in contradistinction to someone like Jerry. And again, Jerry put himself into this position. Now we can criticize him. It's fair to say, like, what's your record? What's your level? Is it just for your own virtue signaling? What are you doing this for? But I'm, I'll, I won't, I'll avoid that. I actually said in the beginning, cause he says like, you know, I say this in the best possible way when he like slams middle America, which is totally offensive. Um, especially since we know both of us know many people who are lifelong New Yorkers grew up there, love it there and came there for the very reasons you talk about. And he talks about, um, and have left and gone to Nashville and Atlanta and all the places you point out from your research driven article with data from Redfin with bandwidth f- facts from from um, online usage and and it, his is just pure emotion and I'm looking at him saying well, you know, James is giving away so much uh, for free and uh, and I guess it's just like, uh, how do you how do you react to that because I think you were doing it altruistically. Yeah. Now, I mean, do you kind of like you, you give so much of yourself, you're so vulnerable. I, I told the audience that before you came on. This man gives of himself. Yeah, I mean, you have businesses and you do that and, and you're actually like doing things like making new improved tools for podcasting and, and, and you're writing books. Uh, you kind of serve as a social pundit that also is has a very serious side. You have a very generous, vulnerable, serious side that uh, is incredibly endearing and helps millions of people, literally millions of people. So I, I, I you know, I, I'll brag on your behalf. Now you go on and say what you're going to say about what else is going on in New York City. <laughs> well, well, I just, you know, I was, I've always been interested in, right in the beginning of this pandemic, I said, look, this is an opportunity now to show that the way a community survives is when the community comes together and thinks about giving to each other, rich or poor, you know, big or small, regardless of race. And 
I was hoping that would happen more instead of everybody just waiting online for bailouts. But also, I'm glad the bailouts happened, and hopefully, more will happen. Yeah. But you can't again. You you can't ignore the problems New York's going through. I mean, again, you're right. In the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of the issue was what is coronavirus? How long is this going to last? The New York Times said there's a hundred. There's going to be 140 million deaths around the world. Is that true? Like, what's going to happen? So I was going through the mathematical models and showing why some were wrong, some were right. I was trying to explain the math of what does exponential mean in a real world environment? It doesn't mean you double forever. It means you, it's like a learning curve. You double and then you level off, which that's a pandemic curve is the same as it looks like a learning curve. And, um, you know, and then when, with the economy, I was having federal reserve governors on, I was having on economists, you know, investors, uh, congressmen and on several politicians just to understand, okay, this is what could happen. And, I was worried if the pandemic lasts for a certain period of time or the lockdown, and this is not a statement on the, the medicine of it or anything, it's just the lockdown is what it is now. This is what would happen. We could have a problem. These problems are starting to come to life now. I've been, my, the article is really a continuation of what I've been saying all along, that these are some of the problems that not only could exist, but now they do exist. And, you know, the hope, I don't know if there's, hope or not, but there's certainly more and more uncertainty. And again, for him to ignore that, I get it because he is not going to face the problems. The workers are going to face the problems and the city is going to face the problems and the people working for the city and the people working for the ecosystem around the city and, you know, the people who own, who own assets like real estate in the city. And again, last week, I think, I don't know what I could have done differently. Like, I don't know why, maybe because I told my own personal story in there, it got a little bit more emotionally charged. So that created a cognitive bias of some sort that was aimed at me instead of aimed at the issues. But then for Seinfeld, like, why do you think Seinfeld did that? Like, why would he need to do that? I think, I think uh, you know, people, again, they want to do something. So, you know, we have a rule as pilots. We say, you know, don't just do something, stand there. Or, or another adage from like the World War II, but now it doesn't work with, you know, an Apple watch. But it used to be in case of emergency, step one on your checklist, wind your watch. It's like people don't like that. It makes them feel very uncomfortable. They like to have, you know, it's like inertia bias. Like they need to feel like they're doing something or else they feel helpless. And I think he's basically, you know, I mean, what is the, you know, I think in a pandemic, let's say an asteroid is coming to the earth let's get a comedian like no it's not going to happen like that's not a top on your not not to say he's he does he probably gives charity i actually don't know much about about what he does um but i you know he's his job is to do uh is to make people entertain and to make people laugh i'm not even saying oh stay in your lane but that's his skill set that's his and, and he is a businessman he is a leader uh etc i think you know combined with a lot of good luck that he had that he acknowledges um, but on, on the other flip side, it's like, um, I think people in that world that are purely entertainers, unlike you, like actresses, like every year, every four years, we get, um, we get, a, you know, a statement from Hollywood actors and actresses on which, why we should vote for the Democrat who's running for president, right? <laughs> it's never like, we get the same thing from 70 Nobel Prize winners every four years, like clockwork. This is why you should vote for the Democrat. Fine. I'm not, I don't talk politics on the show, as you know, but I think that there's, you know, 
even for scientists, like what we do when I study the universe, it's significant on some level, on some meta huge level of thinking about the most important things in the universe. But on a daily basis, you know, we I saw a tweet from Andrew Cuomo, who's, you know, he actually, I saw a tweet that he's attacking you now live on, on NBC. No, no, he's not, but, uh, but it wouldn't I, surprise I, me, I, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Cuomo's he, like- He's having a, a battle with de Blasio. I think he's probably staying away from it. That's the only thing that's protecting me. He's so always, he, he's the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So I, I looked at his tweet. It's like, you know, retweet if you think scientists, you know, that people should listen to scientists, not politicians. I'm like, I'm a scientist. I'm not going to retweet that. Like, I know a lot about the early universe, the Big Bang, different ways the universe could have started. Um, but, you know, you're going to listen to me just because I have, a, you know, I understand differential geometry, topology, uh, early universe theory. You're going to listen to me about like, at, like how we should impact, you know, the continuation of stimulus. No, that's why we elected you, buddy. Don't try to push that off on me. Um, you know, unless you're going to start paying me that, that salary. So I'm happy to advise if Gavin Newsom, my boss here in California as a state employee, if he calls me up and he wants me to do some mathematical modeling, do some physical testing in my lab. And we volunteered to do that early on. But come on, listen to scientists because, but scientists want to do it. And I salute that. It's a virtue to want to be significant, to have an impact, to save a life, um, you know, et cetera. So I think Jerry wants to like save the economy and do something significant because I think ultimately he knows deep down inside it's, and it's not the job of an entertainer to be significant, to have deep thoughts or to be a politician. But I sometimes think they have envy, you know, like, Someone said, like, you know, physicists have math envy, you know, because we can't prove things the way a mathematician can. I think sometimes comedians have, you know, kind of politician envy. That's why you see people like this Hannah Gadsby, or, you know, like they'll have things and they'll say, you are not going to laugh at our show. Like, no, I have enough things where I don't laugh. <laughs> Make me laugh, right. clown. <laughs> right. Well, you know, comedians have a very particular skill at walking into a room and seeing what's unusual in this room. And, but, you know, so take someone like John Stewart. John Stewart over decades honed that particular muscle to spot the unusual in the domain of news and politics. So he got extremely good at pointing out what's unusual in the political system, in the news, whatever. Whether you agree with him or not, that was his skill set. But, you know, again, Jerry, you know, he talks about Pop-Tarts, TV dinners, which people don't even eat. I don't I don't know if people if they even sell TV dinners anymore. But he talks about these other things that are kind of He's an expert at the mundane. I've actually, like I said before, I never seen him comment on something, you know, not that he's not allowed to, by the way, but again, just don't, don't, like you say, it's, it's called an ad hominem attack where if you don't have anything to say, you just attack the, the you, you shoot the messenger. It's another way of saying shoot the messenger instead of understand the message. And I don't, I, I don't think he added to the conversation. And then, of course, de Blasio, who's defending his record, is holding up his article saying, thank you, Jerry, who's this other guy? And, you know, well, de Bill de Blasio, you're the one who's going to have to fire everyone. And by the way, then it's happening to L.A. and San Francisco uh, next. So what's what's going to happen? There's a lot of uncertainty. And and when if we don't trust our leadership, we need to at least be aware of their flaws so that we can make decisions for ourselves. Yes, New York City people have grit and Americans have grit and resilience and and we have a sense of the, the frontier. We can make it on our own to, to, to the frontier. Well, now the frontier is is also inside of ourselves because we have to overcome this 
this fear about this pandemic and this economic insecurity. I mean, 55 million people in the country at some point or other in the past five months filed for unemployment insurance. That's more than one out of three workers. It's incredibly scary. And, you know, you have to be able to. Jerry had to lay off three of his butlers. I mean, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I'm sure maybe some movies he was working on. I don't know. I don't even know what he does. I I know he has a book coming out in October. So maybe this was part of Mm -hmm. that campaign is, oh, he was given some space in the op-ed. So he decided to focus it on on this issue. But since he's never really written on issues before, he didn't he didn't have that skill set. I don't yeah. even know, but he certainly knows how to tear someone apart. Like he has that skill set. I know it was funny. You said, you know, finally you wrote some new material, <laughs> right? Like I had to respond a little bit. So so I said, yeah, like uh, I'm glad I inspired Seinfeld to finally write some some new jokes. But uh, which which, by the way, a lot of well-known comedians sent me messages after that, like they didn't say it publicly where they were like, good job, you know? And, yeah, uh, I thought it was great. You know, and the other thing I want to say is another thing I gleaned from Noam Chomsky. And again, thank you for really encouraging me to do that. It's like one of my most popular videos now, uh, this interview that I was reluctant to do. Uh, but you encouraged me, you know, go like feed the feed the beast like the uh, the um, what's his name? Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey guy. He said um, the hero of a thousand faces said, you know, the cave that you fear to enter holds the treasure you are seeking. And, you know, when you said that, not, you know, it's a little overblown for Noam Chomsky, you know, guy, guys, uh, you know, old enough to be my, my great grandfather, but, uh, but a brilliant person. Uh, and yet, you know, he was saying things like when people, which you got a lot of criticism for, which I think is a vector that Seinfeld is uh, uh, being influenced by. And that's how a lot of the, the outlets that picked up your article were conservative, Fox News, Glenn Beck, um, and you got a lot of attention for that. And people were criticizing you, some guy, you know, tens, millions of followers say, you know, you should be careful, James, when, before this is before pre-Seinfeld uh, attack. Yeah. And they're like, you shouldn't have written this because now all these idiot rubes in middle America are, you know, watching you on Fox News and then they're, you know, they're having cackling and glee. And it reminded me of what Noam said to me when we had our interview, I asked him, like, how did you feel about the backlash to this letter that you wrote in Harper's? He's like, I found it entirely irrational uh, because people were responding to what was done with the article after I wrote it. In particular, you know, J.K. Rowling. Now, like, I wouldn't mind if J.K. Rowling, you know, has something to say about what I wrote. It doesn't, it doesn't, by the, by properties of time invariance under reversal of the time cord, <laughs> you know, like you don't know what someone's going to do with your article. You didn't write it for Fox News. You weren't like commissioned right. by Rupert Murdoch. Here you go, James, write this article. And here's $10 million. You wrote it and it happened to be picked up and it hit a nerve. Now there's some schadenfreude. I think that there are, you know, people certainly, you know, the people that are in middle America that are being derided by the Seinfelds of the world. Uh, for living in Nashville, which is just preposterous. I mean, I just got back from, you know, a few days in, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I was speaking, I was doing some stargazing uh, for my channel using enormous telescopes, really fun time. And it was very, very pleasant to be there too, right? Beautiful skies there. And it was very pleasant to be there. And I'm like, you know, I'm a New Yorker, Californian now. Um, and and being there, the people are salt of the earth. Like, can you imagine what, if he thinks that way about, about Nashville, can you imagine what he thinks about Jackson, Wyoming. <laughs> so I, I just find it very, uh, very irrational as Noam does when people criticize what's done with your work and, and you put so much out there. Um, do you ever get scared like retroactively what's going to happen based on something you might've said a few years ago, or is it like you, you, you just assume that someone's going to misconstrue what you do, or do you allow yourself to learn? Like maybe you'll write a thing, mea culpa, I was wrong. 
Um, you know, I can't see Jerry doing that, but how do you handle the the kind of entropy of of these kinds of being so public? Because it's very well, daunting to me. I think I think it's a lot of good points. So I have a, a you know starting from the, from the beginning of what you were saying. I don't like to hit publish, and I've, we've talked about this before. I don't like to hit publish unless I'm a little bit afraid or a lot afraid of what people will think of me and of the piece. Because again, uh, if, if you're not a little bit afraid, then you're not saying something new. Like if I was just writing, New York's gonna come back because it's got grit and resilience. Everybody on the street is saying that, and it's not new. They don't need my extra voice. Like So my energy and efforts, I'm not trying to say something controversial, but I should say something that I research and have a unique opinion on. And so, but having a unique opinion, you know, if you're going to stick out like a nail, you're going to get hammered. And so that's going to happen. If you're, if you're truly afraid of something you're doing, then it means you're doing something new that's never been done before because you're going into the unknown. And, but I don't do it just for the sake of doing it as some have accused me. I just don't write unless I have an opinion that hasn't been written before. I, otherwise I'll just spend time reading and learning and, and experiencing and experimenting and coming up with new material. And just like, just like I'm not gonna tell a joke about Pop-Tarts when I do stand up because, oh, Jerry Seinfeld's done that. I, you know, Rosie O'Donnell, back, and I'm not, this is, this is all well known. Back in the 70s when they were all performing in LA, by the way, where Jerry lived for 30 years, uh, when Rosie O'Donnell was at performing at, um, um, I, f I forgot the name of the, it might have been the Comedy Store. Or but Catch a Rising Star. Uh, yeah, one of those places. And uh, she was known for copying Jerry Seinfeld's jokes. Okay, that's, you're not doing anything new. So you're not really making a stake for yourself in comedy. Like Jerry Seinfeld's known in comedy because he carved out his own unique voice. Dave Chappelle has his own unique voice. George Carlin had his own unique voice. Richard Pryor was the first one to really talk autobiographically about the hardships he went through and, and how he made it funny. So these are, these are people who said, who, who, did, who went into the unknown. They said things they were afraid to say and became known for it. So that's, I think that's the key for, for writing, for art, for, look, even for science, right? You're going to, by the nature of it, you have to go into the unknown and that's how you risk you risk everything when you go to the South Pole with a, a you know a huge telescope, the Bicep Two, and you're looking to see gravitational waves past the cosmic microwave background radiation. You're taking a risk. Mm -hmm. You might not see anything. But might not come back. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You might not come back. And, but you're also, <laughs> you know, having a, a because it's so unknown and so interesting. You're taking also a chance for you know, greatness and the Nobel Prize and seeing the, the birth of the universe. And so the, uh, you know, experimenting and, and, and going outside your comfort zone and, and going into the unknown, whether you're an artist, a scientist, a politician, economist, this is important. Yeah. And again, I don't think, I think Seinfeld obviously is an expert at that with television and, and comedy. Jon Stewart was good at that with mixing comedy and, and news and politics. Same with Bill Maher, whether you agree with them or not, it's they're they're good at it. And for me, I've been writing about these types of issues for 20 years. And but I do it in a very where I go into the unknown and where I started going into the unknown many years ago is I always weave it with personal stories and that gets it very emotionally charged. And I I, I have had backlash before, never quite like this, but we're also in a time 
unprecedented, which right. is sort of making my point, actually, that this time is different. And again, I think it would have been it's better if people with such a platform and influence like like Jerry Seinfeld, he could write in The New York Times op ed. I wrote to The New York Times yesterday and I said, let me do a rebuttal. They never responded to me. Yeah. So New York Times, he's got that platform. There's many things he can do with it other than attack me yeah and look I, i'm a big boy i could handle it it was upsetting and distressing for like a few hours yesterday and then i got over it and also i wrote a rebuttal people saw the rebuttal and were very positive and encouraging overwhelmingly and uh you know because they saw where i was coming from and it was a good place and and like you mentioned before i in general throughout this pandemic i've been coming from a good place and trying to to help people. Maybe this was a little bit more emotionally charged with a little bit more negativity than I usually have because I have a little more uncertainty here. I don't think so, James. I mean, actually, this this reminds me of uh, something that's really delightfully serendipitously connected to the way that you and I met. And that's your article from June on also on LinkedIn, uh, <clears throat> 12 Secrets of Persuasion I Learned from Eminem. And you start that off with, I walked out of the TEDx conference 20 minutes before my talk, and I was planning on just going to the airport and flying home. I'm a quitter. I was terrified. I did not want to give this talk. My plan was to go home and never return any of the angry calls from the organizers. And you and I talked when you came, when you were gracious enough to come on my podcast last time, I was like, I was kind of the opposite. Like, I was like, this is my time. I'm going to do it the moment, you know, like the Eminem song. Yeah. But, um, but also, but, and then like, I was even diffusing it. My mother-in-law came and said, are you nervous <laughs> to speak? You know, it's 2000 people there. And I was like, I wasn't nervous until now, now that you make me think about it. And she felt horrible. And I was just like, no, I'm just kidding, mom. But um, but you write in this article uh, and I saw, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but you weave through your article on LinkedIn about New York City dead forever with some of these things, like you presage the criticisms that your enemies are gonna level at you. You have, uh, you you start with negativity bias, you know, cause, and, and you talk about all these things. And, but in the LinkedIn article about Eminem, this, the secrets that you learned from Eminem, these are persuasive secrets that are in his battle, rap battle with baby or whatever his name is. I still haven't seen that, but, uh, but thankfully you wrote this, you wrote this uh, great post with a, with a YouTube link it's as well. A great movie and that's a great scene. I know. And it's just so awesome. You go through all the biases and you talk about the in-group bias and, and you start with that in your, was that intentional? Cause you start with like, I'm a New Yorker in-group bias. Boom. I read that first herd behavior. What are all these people going to do? Here's like the collective, how they're re uh, reacting to it. Number three, uh, availability cascade. There's so many things happening. There's so much data. People are leaving and you just lay out the data. Boom. Distinction bias, outgroup bias. People like, you don't have to live in New York to get great food. There's going to be other places that spring up. There's going to be opportunity bias. There's ambiguity bias. How do you know like what actual aspect of this uh, pandemic afflicting New York City is going to be most pernicious? We don't know. It's ambiguous. Um, credential bias, you're talking about how you started off, what your stakes are. You own a half of a comedy club. You share a part owner of a comedy club, uh, Stand Up New York, which is a great, you know, it's, Seinfeld talks about it. He's been there. Uh, you have stakes in this. Your daughter goes to college there. You're from there. You would love to go. Uh, believe me, I know you. The little I know of you, you would like to go back to New York City if it was just like, virus is gone. You'd be out of Florida in a minute. It's not like, oh, I need that. But it's not just the virus. It's the reaction to the virus. And I think that's what you're speaking about. And that's why it's so perplexing. But it's not surprising that they would publish what he wrote. Yeah. And I um, but, you know, it's it's funny because and then I also answer all the objections like, yes, uh, people will say this is like the 70s. No, it's not. And so I answered, you know, it's another thing in the Eminem thing where he 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 
before the other guy starts rapping, he says, yeah, I, I am white. I, I am a bum. I live in a trailer yeah. with my mom. My boy future is Uncle Tom. Yeah. I have a dumb friend named Cheddar Bob, but he shot some of those. <laughs> you <laughs> go through all memory. this and you say all the objections. So like, was that part of this article? Like, was that intentional or is it just the way your brain works now? Yeah, I didn't consciously think about it, but that is how I think about about these articles. I always try to have a miniature arc of the hero inside even a very nonfiction type of a narrative. And, um, and, you know, these things all belong in, you know, all these biases happen in the arc of the hero. And because, uh, you know, like, you know, a big criticism of, of let's say, a piece of fiction or, or an art and even a nonfiction story is the deus ex machina, mm -hmm. where just some lightning from the sky comes and saves the hero. Well, people that people will object to that. So you can't do that. Uh, you have to address that in the story that he, through his own in, or her own ingenuity, the hero survives. And it, it's the same thing. The same kind of cognitive biases have to be addressed in any article, except for an academic article. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. If I lead off with, I am a, I'm a, a no bum. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I do wonder if, you know, it seems like, because this was so charged and I was trying to have the in-group bias, like I'm a New Yorker, there was a there was a desperate attempt to somehow label me not a New Yorker. And I don't even know how that right. started other than the fact like, OK, for a week or two, I've been in Florida, but I was the other 52 years I've been in New York. So and through, all through the pandemic. So I don't know how I got labeled. I don't want some non new some guy from Iowa telling me what to do. Like, right. You know, I got a video last night. Somebody is like, you know, threatening me like I don't want some non New Yorker coming here and telling me my city's dead, like, you know, and threatening me. And um, and, you know, I again, uh, uh, you know, I think it's I think there's going to be hopeful things like I think the country will change. It's it's like the economy is not up or down right now. It's tilted. And how the you know, the water instead of going down one stream has gotten, you know, started going down other streams. I don't know what how you say it, like things that split off from a stream, but the tributaries. Uh, tributaries. Yeah. So there's other tributaries now flowing into some of these second and third tier cities. By the way, this is something that's been written about for the past few months. I'm not the first to say it. So you know, I guess maybe just me saying it all together. And then I had a, a strong title, but people were critical of the title. But if I didn't have the title, nobody would have clicked on it. And there's real danger that the title is is truth. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't think I yeah. would have done anything differently. And I, I did do another article saying, look, here's the hope is that, you know, opportunity gets dispersed and decentralized. And then I did it, you know, I had to do the rebuttal to Seinfeld. So I kind of more clearly laid out the issues without as much of the, the story. And uh, so I, it, it was a little calmer mm -hmm. and, you know, but you made yeah. a good point earlier, though, that uh, people are kind of going in and out of different lanes. Like I've spoken to a lot of scientists during this pandemic and like you wouldn't have given me advice on hydroxychloroquine, for instance, but I've seen I've talked to epidemiologists. I've talked to other types of doctors. I've talked to virologists, immunologists. I've, I've talked to all sorts. And one thing I have noticed is that some scientists who have the MD, you know, the initials in front of them or after them, 
they do kind of veer out of their lanes a little bit. And with a little bit of research, I could see, oh, this guy doesn't really know anything more than anybody else. Uh, you know, particularly if they weren't an epidemiologist. Right. You know, like some. That's what I always say, James. When somebody asks me, like, I give a talk about cosmology, it'll be to a big audience, um, a popular, not a university lecture. I'll give it on. What do you think about climate change? I'm like, you know, okay. And I, I always preface it by saying, I hope when you invite uh, someone to speak about, um, you know, oceanography and atmospheric chemistry, that when you ask them, what do you think about different ways the universe could have begun, that they say, uh, please consult a cosmologist, you know, so it's like, yes, I understand differential equations, Newton's laws, quantum mechanics, etc. Uh, but there's more to being an expert, you know, uh, I mean, theoretically, what Dirac used to say, Paul Dirac, Nobel Prize winner, discovery of the predictor of antimatter, essentially, uh, advanced quantum mechanical um, uh, dynamics. He said, you know, my equations describe all, you know, um, all of chemistry and most of physics, you know, and then he would say things like biology is just applied chemistry, but it's very, you know, I don't think you want, you know, by that logic and medicine is just applied biology. So do you want Dirac who could barely tie his own shoelace? Do you want him to do brain surgery on you? I mean, <laughs> so it's this, right. it's this authority bias halo effect. That's another bias that comes in. Yeah. And, and because I, you know, like Einstein, they wanted him to be the president of Israel for, and he was just like, what the heck? you know, um, or, or, you know, I wouldn't go to Einstein for like fatherly advice. He basically abandoned his kids. He had sex with his cousins or something. I forget exactly the, the details, but, but the bottom line is like, we have this halo effect around scientists, which is why Andrew Cuomo is saying like, you should listen just to scientists. No, you should listen to scientists, but you, we voted for you, Andrew Cuomo, um, as, or the New Yorkers did, or Gavin Newsom here in California, because you have to make the hard decisions, not outsource right, take lots brain of brain because in. smart people. Yeah, and let me ask you a question though. Like, like one, I, I, I agree with you, but I'm, I'm curious if you could broaden what your expertise is in the sense that, yes, you have answers to, you know, cosmological questions, but also my guess is you're better at asking questions regardless of the field. So if someone said to you, what's the answer about climate change? You might not know the answer, but you might be able to say, well, here's 10 questions I would think about asking if this was my field. I bet Absolutely. you that you could do with some expertise because questions yeah. are just as hard as answers in many yeah, cases. Yeah, I get asked, for example, I get asked and I see different things because I'm not an expert in that field. I'll give you an example. Uh, because I'm not an expert in oceanography, I'll sometimes be asked to review proposals about like physical oceanography. And in fact, once it came down to uh, reviewing a proposal about why is there a difference between the melting rate of the North Pole versus the South Pole ice caps? There should be identical just based upon irradiation and other factors. There's some current effect, but the scientist, um, you know, I won't say who it was, uh, but they couldn't get funding because, you know, it kind of was disagreeing with some of the orthodoxy of, of what their field had suggested was the truth. And so the only way they could get us through like a private entity um, affiliated with, with uh, the university I was at. And so I would read about it and I'd understand it, but because I wasn't so invested in the field, I didn't have that sunk cost into like the narrative of my field um, that I could see things from a different perspective and ultimately was able to persuade people that, you know, it wasn't like, it was like 50K or something. It wasn't a tremendous amount of money for my scientific standards to support students and go on a vessel or whatever, but, um, but he ended up getting it and, and get, get, did good work, interesting work. Um, but when the stakes, there's a difference when the stakes are really high and that can actually occur in my field, you know, like we said, we discovered the origin of the universe in a, in a huge, you know, cataclysmic event called inflation. 
um, that had huge implications. And actually on the very day that we announced the results on uh, that I described in losing the Nobel Prize, my book, I'll plug it now, um, that uh, we actually had people on like atheists saying this proves there is no God. And then we had this is the proof of the handiwork of God, like on the same day, you know, for eminent scientists or theologians or scientists, theologians. Uh, and it's just so funny that even in that thing where it's where it should be the most objective data. Here are gravitational waves which are indicative of a of quantum perturbations in a primordial scalar field, blah, blah, blah. There could be like what gets layered on top, the super, the superstructure that then gets erected around it is really dramatic. I'm actually reading Galileo's book, The Dialogue, uh, The Dialogue on the Two World Systems, which is a fascinating book. It's not only, you know, and it made me think, I keep thinking back, it's still stuck in my craw when you gave these awesome tips on how to read a nonfiction book and talked about these crappy science. No, no, no. You talked to like you like, how do you read it? Uh, and um, and there's a there's a preface to it that says most books like Newton's Principia, one of the most influential books of all time is basically unreadable. I mean, even by me, I can hardly understand it. I've seen the original copy, I've read translation. I can't get past the first couple of pages. The dialogue is written in, as, a, as a dialogue, as a platonic conversation between two or three people. And it's so engaging, it's 400 years old almost. And you're just like, you're wrapped up. And this guy had this amazing ability to do the hardest thing that you always talk about. If you can tell a story, you've got it made. It doesn't matter if you're a salesman, you're writing website, you're doing copy editing, you yeah. have a skill and you stress this often. Uh, and, uh, but part of the problem is most scientists don't think that that's a value. So you ask me like, can I talk about climate? Yeah, I can talk about, it. I can talk about like the, you know, quantum mechanical pro properties of, 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 of drugs, you know, like if you don't use zinc, if you, you know, people are saying, oh, zinc is just like only used in diaper rash ointment. Well, that's not really true. Like there's a lot of medicines that you take, um, for like lupus and so, that have, uh, arsenic in them. Like, okay. I thought arsenic kills you, you know, like. Yeah, so just to say, oh, zinc is only used for diaper rash, that's that's a fundamentally an irrational objection. Now, I'm not make, taking a stamp because I actually haven't studied it. Um, I do think, you know, people using it around the world for 50 years or whatever, at least we know it's safe. It's not going to kill now, some people's heart condition. Anyway, I'm not a doctor of that variety. But getting back to it, I think most scientists can't tell a story um, uh, really in the way that their subject matter is the greatest subject matter there is and that storytellers are doing such a poor job at it, which is why I feel like my mission is kind of like make things interesting the way Joe Rogan does about science that's really passionate and uh, but but you know explain the work of my colleagues who are more brilliant than I am, but are not as good at maybe telling a story or weaving together the threads. That's what I see my mission is um, and while I'm also trying to do real science. Well, let me ask you this, like Richard Feynman is obviously one of the greatest physicists ever. Yeah. Part of the reason why I think he's one of the greatest businesses ever because I have no clue really is because he writes such compelling stories like surely you're joking Mr. Feynman is maybe yeah. the most popular uh, modern science book around like for the past 50 years and you know and then you also you have kind of these um, string theorists like you know Brian Green and Michio Keku mm -hmm. who uh, who have popularized science look Neil Grass Tyson, I don't know if he's a good scientist or not, but he's a good storyteller. So he's one of the most well-known scientists, at least. And I think he's the well-known, most well-known scientist in human history because of just the advent of media, et cetera. Like, yeah, exactly. no other scientist has been known by more people on the face of the planet.
maybe Stephen Hawking. Yeah, maybe Einstein. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hawking was really good at it, but he was also he had that wit. He had that he didn't take himself so seriously. And it's very hard, James, when you talk about a pandemic that can kill millions of people or global warming, which you know some say will uh, render the earth uninhabitable and kill everybody. You know, it's hard to make light of that. Like, let's you know, here's ten jokes on the way the world will end. You know, by by fire, by ice, etc. Uh, those kind of you know things are not endemically you know uh, just hilarious you know uh, gut busters, but uh, but you're right. These people have a skill, and the hard thing is to do that and continue to do real science, and that is a little bit rare. Brian Greene does that exceptionally well. You know Neil deGrasse Tyson will say he's not currently a scientist, and actually he does a great thing. If you ask him, oh, tell me about the Big Bang, Neil, you're so smart. And he'll say, go talk to, well, he won't say go talk to Brian Keating. He doesn't return my emails or, or calls, but uh, maybe someday he will. Um, not when he finds out that, you know, I talk to you and, and that you're, you know, ransacking uh, New York City where he calls home and makes his living. But I, I've been on his podcast a couple of times. He's been on mine, but yeah, that I, was then. I much, I much prefer, that was then. That was when New York City yeah, was vibrant. <laughs> right. Now I'm not allowed to go back to New York City. There's like a picture <laughs> you're forbidden. of the airport. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, by the way, if you're coming to New York, my friends there now, you know, working on, you know, the university system that you talk about, I mean, you're just giving facts. You're saying, here are all the dorm rooms that are going to be unused here. And, and like, what are the, yeah, of course, the kids aren't going to pay dorm you know, fees. They're going to be remote. They're going to pay tuition at a lot of places. Uh, but the, what are the landlords going to do? How are you going to stay afloat? Comedy clubs, like Jerry's like, oh, your comedy club, blah, blah, blah. Like, um, I heard it said that, and I think you told me this, you know, most, the average American has $500 saved to their name. Uh, what would you say is the average amount that the average comedian has saved up? <laughs> Probably less than $500. Negative. I mean, yeah. I know, uh, 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 and this is, I, I don't say this in a um, happy way. I know a very good comedian, very talented, maybe one of the most talented in the world, actually, and one of the most well-known, if I were to say his name. And during this time, he's been delivering for Grubhub. Like, yeah. you know, it's just... His skill was kind I know a physician, really James. I know a, a neonatologist. I know, like, she, she works in an, in an ICU. She she was doing Grubhub, now, both for financial reasons, because they laid off doctors, right? We laid yeah. off our essential work, some essential workers. People don't talk about that. She had to make a living, and she's, you know, she's single. She made a good living. They furloughed her one day a week. That's a huge thing when you have built-in expenses, and it's not like the PPP or whatever it was called covered all that. But the other thing is she also missed social contact and she missed seeing people and even, you know, she's single. And so she, she couldn't, you know, she couldn't meet people. And it wasn't like, you know, she's going out and it's like Tinder in real life or something, but she wanted to just have human contact. And I think that's, what's missing. And, and I think, you know, how much longer can this go on? You come to New York city. Now you have to quarantine for two weeks or you get like a $10,000 fine. Like, has there ever been a state, like after nine 11, they didn't let me get too close to, to ground zero, but you could get very close to it actually for a couple of days, could walk through it and it was dangerous. I didn't do that. I came around uh, early November of 2001, but um, it wasn't like you had a quarantine when you came there for two weeks. I mean, what's yeah. that going to do? No, I know. And th that's why, again, this time is different. And so it's a different set of questions like, okay, they took the economic playbook of 2008, 2009, which is the Federal Reserve Reserve reduces interest rates to basically zero. They 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 start what's called moving up the curve. Instead of just buying Treasury bills, they buy other types of bonds. Um, this is all economic stuff. So they, but they it's basically they followed that playbook, but to a little bit more of an extreme. And uh, and then there was also a, a, a Keynesian style stimulus package passed by Congress. But then 
nothing else about this is the same as any other event. Not World War II, not the Depression, not the 70s. It's different. And also then you have like these nuances like the fact that bandwidth is pretty good. Like we could, mm -hmm. you know, we could have meetings with people now and then be more productive. We could have meeting after meeting and 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 then go back to work without moving or or we could jog around the block or there's a lot there's there's a wide variety of options now for us to get our work done. And it's just it's just a different world and that and that has to be acknowledged, but also the economic problems of you know what's happened has to be acknowledged. Again, I I I keep saying it and I and maybe it's because it's still I I, I can't it still bothers me. I really don't know why I got, I wish I hadn't gotten so much hate. And uh, uh, I think James, you know, you did, you did again, you know, I'm going to give you your own advice, you know, doctor here, Lysel, Dr. Altucher, you know, what you do is so rare and you have to think about it. How many people have the platform to do something that requires courage? Like me saying something to you, I've got, you know, a few thousand followers. It doesn't take that much courage. I actually tweeted out to you know Jerry. I was gonna say something. Tell me if you think this is funny. Like you know Jerry refuses to come on college. Like, he's so brave. I tweeted out you know he attacks James Altucher, uh, but he's too scared to come on college campuses. And I was gonna put unlike the old days where he used to go on high school campuses to find his future uh, partner. Anyway, <laughs> that, I didn't go that way. That's funny. <laughs> uh, I didn't go that deep. I, but like let's say I did. You know like I was a little nervous. I'm not gonna say that. You know maybe Jerry. Will get, but I'm like, Jerry's not gonna see what. Brian Keating, what the hell? He doesn't care about that. But um, yeah, I didn't publish it anyway. But you know, but it took no courage not to do that because I don't have any backlash from Jerry Seinfeld. It's not going to come down on me. But I think what you're doing again, you did it for pure reason. If you did it to like, you know, you're going to sell, you know, uh, shares in your in your timeshare in Southern Florida or wherever you are now, I think that's another story. But I personally know, like, Jerry's not like making fun of Joe Rogan, is he? He's not making fun of, you know, like right, people Joe that are Rogan has twice read my article on the air. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's just unbelievable. And and you know, and so like you didn't do it for ulterior motives. I know you, you're doing it for, for purity of you give away so much and and you still have, you know, have this uh, extreme uh, degree of, of of courage. But I'm just I think it's too soon to tell, you know, like they used to ask Cho and Lai, you know, about in Vietnam, like, what do you think of the French Revolution in the 1970s? And Cho and Lai said, too soon to tell. And I think it's too soon to tell, you know, about about the revolution of this article. Look, we all want to get back to New York City. I can't wait to go there. I've got friends, family investing, you know, kind of I was thinking about buying in a, you know, a, a, you know, and renting a pied a terre there someday if I if I could afford it because I love it so much and I miss my family there so much. I mean, my brother, my cousins. I don't know right now if I could do it. And and part of me was just like, oh, I'm just torn between all this. And you know, for me to, to think about that's the way that um, New York, now, I didn't say like, I hate you, James, for bringing it up. I said, this is this is very courageous. And so again, I don't, don't second guess it. It's it's had a lot more goodness. The fact that you're getting the attention, look, would, again, would Jerry, if I wrote to the San Diego Union Tribune, you know, New York's dead, like, no, but he wouldn't write back and Blasio wouldn't care. But you're making them think and they have to confront you. And if they don't let you respond in kind, I think that that's, you know, almost proof like you did you did the final thing you did from the M&M, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, what do you want to call it? debrief takedown analysis that you did about his persuasive techniques at the very end of the article. And at the very end of the M&M article, you talk about the um, reciprocity bias or, um, you know, what you'd call the Ben Franklin effect, 
which is, you know, Ben Franklin used to use a technique to win over his political enemies. He would ask them to borrow a book from his political rival. His, his rival would give him a book. And then, uh, then the rival would think, hmm, now I'm the type of person that gives Ben Franklin books. So I must have this fondness for Ben Franklin. And it com completely uh, alternated his view about Ben Franklin. At the end of your article, or at the end of your statements to Jerry, you're like, you're welcome back. You know, like, come on back, Jerry. You know, will he do it? I think it's proof that he won't. I think it's proof that uh, that he doesn't have the courage that you have. Anyone can write that. I mean, could the point is, could you write Jerry's article, James? Could you steal a man? No. Well, I could. Well, I mean, you could do it. Like Brian yeah, Keating writes, man. like Florida sucks. Like, could you write? You know, could you write? Uh, an, okay, you know, could you do what Jerry Seinfeld? In other words, just defend New York grit, resilience, platitude here. Insert, you know, uh, polemic no, but, there. But I can't do exactly that, but I could do because that wouldn't quite steal, man. Like you said, that was an ad hominem attack. No, but, I don't mean that. I just mean, could you write an article about how great New York is going to come back and pla and and not attack personally because that's not your style. But you could write an article that's hopeful, resilience, grit, blah blah blah. Yeah. So if I was. Jerry Seinfeld or anybody. So this is a great exercise. So this, the steel man exercise or Charlie Munger calls this inverting, which is you have to argue the other before you may have an opinion. You have to argue the other side better than even than your opponents can argue it. So let's say I was trying to argue the other side of my article. I, I don't even want to say better than Jerry Seinfeld because there's like five levels higher to, to argue this. But I would say this. Look. A lot of it's going to boil down to the relationship between our the mythology of New York City with the mythology of America. It's obviously they're they're connected. New York City's not only the financial capital of America; it's it's really like the capital of the world in some ways. Yeah. And uh, let's look at it in terms of the election. If Biden wins, he's going to certainly bail out uh, New York City. Now, would is ten billion dollars? enough no that's a band-aid you still have to issues with are people going to leave are people going to are uh, you know uh, are his broadway actors going to move to nashville or wherever so maybe you need a little bit more than 10 billion maybe you need 20 billion then you also need to um temporarily give new york city enough money to give corporate incentives for companies to come back or, or huge incentives for them to stay and maybe even hire more employees like give them tax incentives the more employees they they hire um, and, and that, and then you have to argue that's going to happen. So if, if Biden's elected, that will happen. And if Trump is reelected, you can say, look, Trump's a lifelong New Yorker. He wants to come in as savior. Uh, Dinkins is on his way out. So, you know, at that point, Trump's not quite a lame duck, but, uh, Cuomo could possibly take credit if, if he works out a deal with Trump to bail out New York city. New York City needs money. That's it's a financial issue to keep people in. And then it needs to create incentives to keep people and companies in there right now because people are leaving. Like like you call any moving company, they're overbooked. They don't even return the phone calls. Yeah, so, I sent uh, you that article from the New York. Like, are they yeah. canceling that? Like, we're turning away business. Yeah, exactly. So so that's how I would steal man. It is that the likelihood is I can make an argument that the likelihood is is that there will be a bailout of some sort now and i didn't address that in my article because no. that that i don't know if that will happen that's very a lot of uncertainty but i could see a path towards that happening but the bailout would have to be massive and much more massive than they they have their handout for so but i could be wrong too it could it could be maybe not as massive because of this resilience and and so on but 
you know, that's how I would steel man it. I would yeah. say, James brings up good points. Let's address them one by one. Mm -hmm. that, and that's how answering the objections. And then I would say, look, okay, uh, uh, restaurants, we should provide incentives maybe for, uh, you know, New York residents and tourists. Like, hey, let's do a deal with tourists. Like, if you come now, you get um, $100 of meals for free at the airport or, or something. I don't know. Like, but there, there should be some game of incentives that's played. And, and that's how I would steel man the, the argument. So in the last couple of minutes that we have, um, James, you know, if you could rewrite it, redo it, um, what would you do differently? Uh, would you go even more in the data side? I, I, I really like that you have this, you know, data backed up and it's, it's actually not too dissimilar. I mean, there used to be, you know, I was reading again, Galileo's dialogue book. Um, and it's just so funny, you know, in 1632, these guys are going back and forth. You know, Newton had Leibniz, who he hated. Uh, actually, Galileo, uh, funny enough, he sabotaged, in some sense, his own freedom because he, um, he there were uh, data points from Kepler that could have added weight to the Copernican theory that the sun is the center of the universe. That was what Galileo was arguing about in his book called The Dialogue on Two World Systems. The two world systems are Aristotelian, uh, Earth-centered geocentrism, where the Earth is the center of the universe, and then, um, and then Copernican's heliocentric, where the sun is the center of the universe. Well, Kepler had this phenomenal data that went back to, um, that went back to Tycho Brahe and others, Tico Brahe with his rival, you know, he got his nose cut off in a duel with a scientific rival or, you know, political rival. So, you know, things have calmed down somewhat. We, we settled things nowadays with, you know, fist fights and, 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 and the faculty club. But, uh, but you now Galileo basically ruined his, some of his own support because Kepler had this, these data points. And Kepler, according to Galileo, was this uh, basically this fraudulent grifting astrologer. You know, he had such derision for him. He wouldn't even show him his telescope, so he like kept it to himself. So, what would you do differently uh, about this article, if anything, or you know, would you add more to it? Because I think it's such a powerful, it's such a powerful piece. I mean, I could have added more to it, but it was already very long, so mm -hmm. uh, I didn't want to add that much more to it. It was, it was, it was one of my longer articles, but. Uh, you know, for, first off, let me ask you, why are you reading um, Galileo? I think that's very interesting. Oh, so I'm uh, participating in a uh, book club, this uh, Prager University, which I did a, a po very popular um, course on, you know, kind of a five minute video. It's not a real university. They're like, well, how can you be on something? It's not a real university. I'm like, I once went to Budweiser University to get a beer, you know, like, give me a break. Um, <clears throat> but an anyway, uh, I did one about the multiverse. Um, and why so many scientists have almost like a religious like faith in it and it got a lot of attention and he you know from scientists and non-scientists people can check that out on youtube or elsewhere um but uh but now they want to do a course on the classic books of all time so things like 1984 um victor frankl's man's search for meaning so they want to have something in the scientific realm and something that influenced me as a as a professional scientist um was galileo's book uh the dialogue because it's really a work of popular science. It's a it's a work uh, that has tremendous imp impact on kind of the uh, the battle between science and religion, politics and science. But it also is a you know psychology study in this man Galileo, and it's fascinating to see what his um, what his desires, his compulsions, his biases. The original title for that book. Tell me, you know, if you do A B testing, which is better, the dialogue on two world systems, or on how tides on earth work.
I might like the dog on two world systems, actually. That's what it was called. And yeah. but originally Galileo wanted to call it how tides work or something like that, which I didn't know uh, until I started rereading this book and I had forgotten it. Uh, but everyone knows it's the book that got him in trouble, eventually got him imprisoned. And he was, you know, in some sense on trial for reason. You know, some people say he was in prison for 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 being rational. And there are all these myths about him um, that, you know, he went to jail and was tortured, all this stuff. Some of which I actually, actually you know, included in my TEDx talk, which you may or may not remember. Actually, you were about on your way to the airport. Yeah, I think I was vomiting then. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so I'm reading because it's a study in psychology. So just like you have with Eminem, I want to do kind of a breakdown, like what is a science? scientist like what what makes a scientist what drives him or her the biases the humanity because this this vision that like a scientist is Einstein I'm not Einstein therefore I can't be a scientist that's detrimental to progress in science so those are the reasons I'm rereading this book and the reason I ask is I think it's a very important aspect of mastery and learning to read the history of your field yeah. like I'm always amazed for instance, you know, in like, let's say, you know, when I used to be a professional investor, how many of my peers did not know the history of investing, the history of bubbles, the history of the different economies. I know a lot of people now who don't really know, you know, you know, pundits or investors or economists or people who write about these things don't really know how the depression started, how it ended, how they don't really know the roots of the Great Recession. I did a whole kind of what I call a Twitter masterclass on it, and people were uh, amazed that they didn't really think of it in these in these ways. But right. it reminds me of how um, Bobby Fischer one time when he was a kid, he uh, so he was the greatest chess player ever, arguably. And at one point, he took a year off when he was like 12 years old, 13 years old, and he disappeared for a year. And during that year, he read, he studied every single game played in the 1800s. You know, so there was all these classic <laughs> players and they had a very different style of playing then. It was called the romantic style of playing chess, but it was it was considered very basic by the time Fisher was was around. And but what he did was he studied these eight games from like the 1830s so much that he found improvements in every game. And then he came back, played in the U.S. championship, all of these ancient openings that people were like, oh, this is just easy to, and he had improvements though. And he won like with a perfect score, the U.S. championship and became the youngest chess grandmaster in history. And so studying the, the ancients and studying the older material really does build in any field, this kind of, you know, mastery of the, the fundamentals and, and yeah. people kind of forget that, I think. I try to teach that to my students, actually on the final day of their defense, hopefully none of them are listening. They're all hard at work in the lab. But uh, but I asked them things like, uh, I you're a professional astronomer now or astrophysicist, now you have PhD, doctor or so-and-so. Um, I think the earth is not only flat, but it's also stationary. Prove me wrong. And sometimes uh, even my colleagues in the room can't answer, how do we know that we don't know? Now that transports you back to the time of Galileo. So the reason he wanted to call it the book, the uh, how tides work was because he felt that was the most convincing evidence for the motion of the earth around the sun, which is the tenant, central tenet of Copernican theory that he was trying to espouse and support. Uh, and he used as evidence for it this uh, this you know mug of vodka, my my Irish up coffee over here. So he said, you know, you have coffee and it sloshes around in there. You can barely see it, and that's because it's wrote the Earth is rotating on its axis like this, but it's also going around. So just like the coffee in this cup sloshes around as it goes, so too do the tides. 
And that was his theory. And the Catholic Church forbid him from calling it that. And thank goodness that it, they did. And then he basically had to rewrite it. And, and, and that became lesser known as one of the pieces of evidence because we, and it's good for him. It turned out really well for him to listen to your editors, even when they have like swords and, and, right. you know, and, and pitchforks or whatever, uh, the rack and so forth. Uh, my editors are slightly more kind. Uh, they are sometimes right in that that theory turned out to be completely wrong. The moon causes the tide has nothing to do with the earth's motion around the sun at all. Zero, not a zilch, FS, not a whatever. And so he was prevented, you know, we wouldn't even know about it if he had used the original title that he wanted. It wouldn't have had the impact. It probably maybe never would have gotten published. Maybe Instead, he wouldn't have been as famous as he was because other people around the same time were coming up with the same theories, but he stood out because of his the book, his personality, his imprisonment, his fights with the church. Exactly. The legend, the story, as you keep bringing up, the story resonates so loudly that the forward written to that book is by Albert Einstein. And he even talks about the edition that I have, uh, you know, where he writes the forward to that, to the translation uh, that, you know, yeah, great men can have great flaws, basically, is, is the thesis that, that we come up with from reading Einstein's forward. And he even talks about, like, how they knew what they knew. But think about what you just said. To be a great painter, I believe you should go back and first paint every great painting in history. Just reproduce it. Oh, it's beneath you. You've got these great ideas for like doing whatever. Uh, fine, you can have those ideas, but first understand it. And the problem with things like the Nobel Prize, the influence that the Nobel Prize has that's pernicious in science is that it teaches you the answers before you have the questions. Like it teaches you, here's the right answer, Einstein, here's the right answer, Dirac, Schrodinger, blah, blah, blah. But you never go through the process. Like what if I was in 1631 and I wanted to prove, you know, I get teleported back and this famous example that gives you night terrors. You know, if James gets teleported back, I mean, you have very yeah, few yeah. skills you've admitted. Zero. I have slightly more because I, you know, I can divine and make predictions about eclipses. I, I would kill myself as soon as I got a toothache. <laughs> what I am I going to do? Like, the poorest person, you know, that we know, you know, has better dental care, hopefully, than, than the richest, you know, king of England did in 1632. But how would you, how would I prove it? How would I prove that the earth, and surprisingly, as I said, you know, look at this picture behind me. Like Manhattan looks pretty flat. New York looks pretty, like the earth looks pretty flat. Prove yeah. it wrong. And that will yeah. screw your brain. That's a hard question. I ask people all the time, can you prove that the world is not flat? And they're like, oh, come on. The world's, everyone knows. No one can prove it. It's yeah. very hard. Or they'll say, go into space. And I'm like, no, no, no. You're in 1632. Like there yeah. is no spaceship. Like you're going to tell the king of England to go into a spaceship. So I agree with you hundred percent. This, this under, underappreciated kind of masters of Western and, um, you know, and, and uh, even in Eastern civilizations, um, they, they had great technology reproduce those. And it's just like training your jokes. I, you know, you could probably do really good job in comedy. Maybe, you know, we talked about this once before, but like, just like telling Seinfeld's joke, whatever, like, see if you would do it differently. Like, see if you get a laugh, if you don't get a laugh, but he got a laugh. Why is that? And yeah, or, no, you know, that's a, that's a really good point. Like I said to my daughter once, um, she was thinking of going to do an open mic and I said, okay, take a bunch of Seinfeld's jokes and mm. I, and, and try them. And I said, and she said, isn't that stealing? And stealing is a big no, no in comedy, oh, yeah. which, which I agree with that. No, no. Like if you're performing in front of uh, professionally in front of an audience, do not steal anyone's jokes. But I said to her, no, it's like you're doing a cover and the only other audience is beginning comedians that an open mic. So you're just doing a cover to, to you're isolating what people think is the key 
um, component of comedy, which is the joke, and you're getting everything else correct. So we, we know the joke is funny, so now we have to master stage presence, crowd work, uh, your nervousness, the way you hold the mic, you know, all your likability, your charm on the stage. So let's see if you can get if you can get those going, then you could start to write your own material. Yeah. And it, it's 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 like just doing a cover of a joke and seeing if you could do a good job. I don't I've never done that because I went straight for better or for worse to the, the stage, but I'll do it in my home. I will imitate in front of a mirror like Dave Chappelle or Jerry Seinfeld or you know, whoever my favorite comedian of, of the day is like, you know, I've had hundreds of favorite comedians. So I will, I will imitate them until I've got their style down. And then I don't tell their jokes on stage, but at least I know, oh, here's a situation that TJ Miller once found himself in and he did this. I'll try to do something similar. And so you build up this vocabulary of, you know, techniques built through history. Yeah, you had a podcast with uh, like the most funniest joke. It's about like state abbreviations or whatever. Like, oh yeah, Gary Goldman, man, yeah, that is a brilliant great, joke. Right. So, uh, uh, one thing you get just directly is now you can imitate. Like, if you work on impressions, which are very hard to do, perfect, you know, well, but um, you know, you can get their voice. Like, did you ever know that? Like, whatever, you could actually literally imitate Jerry or, or whatever and get their accent. So like you would you would actually be building something new in your repertoire, even though it's derivative of what they did. And of course, yeah, I mean, like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel is kind of based on that, like her husband that becomes her ex, you know, it's like copying jokes from, I don't know, like Bob Newhart or somebody. Yeah, yeah uh, right. The, uh, Dave Chappelle of his time, maybe. Uh, but the uh, the interesting thing to me is like, I noticed this with my students. Um, I'm, I'm really lucky. I get students from all over the world that come here. I have students from China, from Thailand, uh, I had students from Uganda, <clears throat> from Kenya. And with the graduate students I had, I would pay out of my own pocket because the university for some reason doesn't value this, uh, but I would pay for them to go to Toastmasters. And what do you think they do there? They're like, you know, doing a toast or roast or whatever. Uh, they, they don't know, like, whatever they're talking about, like Eisenhower at the Rose Garden in 1952, you know, whatever. They're just reading stuff, but they have to then, they, they get these meta skills of presentation, of a crowd warming, of sales. It's really valuable. Yeah, it's extremely valuable and we never teach it and maybe next time we chat um because i know you have to go i've kept you over but we'll talk um we'll talk some other time about uh, academia and i want to get your kind of I, i'd love to know i've asked this of you know noam chomsky eric weinstein um some non-jewish people too i've asked them uh, <laughs> what would they teach at their university so if altitude university comes to fruition as i'm hoping it will and and i'd like to be the first dean provost chancellor of that fine institution but i want to know what would you what kind of things encapsulate the sum of human knowledge of of you know and it could be things like speaking comedy you know uh, art etc so let's save that hopefully you'll yeah uh, that's you'll, a great topic and it could be divided into two which is what's good from um you know first through 12th grade and then what's good uh as an adult yeah because uh, there's different skill sets yeah you know that are needed and 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 I, actually i'd also like to kind of uh just thinking about it uh think about which which of these things require if any um in pre in person presence or which can we actually use in the in the virtual environment and uh things like virtual reality etc i want to get your uh, impressions about that um, and then we'll have, uh, we'll have, you know, Bill de Blasio and Jerry Seinfeld come in and talk about politics. Oh my God. I, I wonder if I just were to call Bill de Blasio right now and like, I I'm going to do this as an experiment. Actually. Yeah, let's do I'm it. Going, I'm Give going to, number? to call, let's see. Call his office exclusive. <laughs> now you're inviting him to come on your show to 
discuss this. That's a good idea. I am James Altucher. Okay, thank you very much. So there's basically no way to get a hold of him. (laughs) I had to submit a comment in 50 words or less, and he'll get back to me within two weeks, and under no circumstances should I call the number again about the same topic. (laughs) That's very, uh, you know, it's like New York is just so welcoming. I mean, I I forgot about that. I wonder Um, if if there's any way, like I could just call up, like I'm friends with the Brooklyn Borough President, so I could just call him on his phone, and he's coming on my podcast next week to talk about my article. But I guess de Blasio is not as uh, oh. accessible. Well, yeah, I mean, that's Eric Adams, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's great. I love him. Uh, so hopefully he'll be the next mayor. Who knows? But yeah, yeah. actually, you could t- you could say when you write him this 50 word thing, you know, you're, you want to give equal opportunity, Eric Adams uh, and you to come on the show to talk about this article instead of just, you know, tweeting about it. You're a businessman. You own and employ people, uh, own real estate. You employ people. And uh, you're trying to do you're trying to help New York, and that's the bottom line. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think you're you're tremendously uh, courageous, as I said. And uh, I really, you know, I really have a, a fond spot in my heart for you, James. It's always fun to talk to you. Yeah, uh, ditto, Brian. I'm, I'm looking forward to chapter two of when we talk about how the universe began. I'm I'm all ready. I've got. Yeah. I can't questions. wait till I get back in my lane. That's all I want to do is swim in my lane down the East River. Over, that's over here. Uh, James, awesome to chat with you. Thank you so much. Be strong. Be courageous. There's millions of people that support you all over the world. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Um, Thanks, Brian. I, I appreciate it. And I appreciate always coming on the show. And, and thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Bye, James. See you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, rate, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Watch us on YouTube. Listen on iTunes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California.